I'm a member of NYC Resistor, yeah. which is just had their 10th anniversary as I think it's New York City's first and oldest hacker space. And they don't have a water jet. There's a shop bot and it takes up like the whole wood shop. And yeah. I think everyone is a little sad about how much of the wood shop it takes up, although it's really nice to make things. And the laser cutter, no water jet, no. And it's up four flights of stairs. Like <laughs> It's a real New York experience. Yeah, for sure. I take I take the freight elevator. but 10 years old is the oldest makerspace in New York? Yeah. You've been here for a while, obviously. Was yeah. there a scene of any note prior to that? Sure. I know like the MakerBot guys came out of that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I think it was more, I don't know if it was labeled, right, as the maker scene around yeah. that time 10 years ago. But before that, it maybe wasn't just called that. It was just like artist spaces. What's that That one that was in Queens? That, you know, these like collective places that either people lived there and worked there or had their own kind of vibe going on or schools like yeah. ITP at NYU or like places that had workshops that felt like what hackerspaces feel like now in terms of facilities and, and types of projects being worked on. You were at Adafruit for a while and in a way that was kind of a, a version of that, right? I mean, it was like, a, it was a, a job, it was a, a business, but it did sort of have that vibe to it. Yeah. I mean, we had all the same facilities as yeah. a makerspace, you know, and all the tools right there and laser cutter, 3D printer, um, but even better, like, cause there's staff to help with that kind of yeah. thing. Like I rarely did I ever do any 3D modeling on my own. I would sort of hold a post-it note up to a webcam and then like <laughs> a couple people later, um, uh, draft mo like physical model would show up on my desk so it was kind of like 3d printing concierge service it's almost too good but the business version of a makerspace very much yeah. yeah which is one of the few ways that it's actually sustainable in a place like new york if you're actually you know making money yeah. from it yeah have small high margin inventory it seemed like you were able to just sort of like do what you do and be yourself there like make the stuff that you were making anyway to some degree i would say me a it's face. like a blend of um <laughs> The blend of like my own ideas and like, you know, my boss's ideas and yeah. sort of a mixture of educational goals and sort of uh, broad stroke curriculum that was going to help people level up their skills, but also show them some product that's going to make it easier for them along the way. You were kind of at the front of the, the wearable trend in a way too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, because I like crafts. And um, <laughs> so in college, when you like crafts and you're in design school and you start to play with electronics, people say like, gee, you should really, you know, you should really try to combine any methods of making you're interested in because it's at the intersections of different mediums where the interesting stuff happens, right? And they're like, oh, well, you like to sew and you like electronics. So that means you uh, should be doing like fashion, wearable tech stuff. And I was like, well, I am interested in like interface design, HCI and but like, I'm not really into fashion or dressing up or costumes and cosplay, which is one of the most interesting areas for wearables, right? So I'm, I'm not really driven by fandom. When I like to create stuff, I like to it to not be based on like somebody else's fictional character. And so yeah. I don't know, my interests don't personally align with what they Need it would need to be to fully embrace like everything that wearables uh, has to offer in the DIY space, you know. And then in the professional space, it gets really boring because it's like a board with. I never wanted to be involved in any wearable startups because they're making everything's just like a tiny little Bluetooth board with an accelerometer or some other sensor on it. It's like some very slightly different iteration of existing technologies. Yeah, and we're in that that space. It's, it's a lot of customers are willing to invest, you know, less than a hundred dollars or a hundred and whatever the sweet spot is, one hundred and twenty nine yeah. ninety nine for like some cool wearable gadget that addresses their specific problem. So it's cool that there's like this balloon of interest and support for devices or apps that address individual 
problems or issues. It's cool. It's fertile time for development. But also like a lot of them, it's in that time when there's going to be a brainstorm and then a culling. Yeah. And I like I just like to make and teach people stuff more than I like, more, more than I'm passionate about altering our human bodies with technology. So ultimately, my interests ex, uh, extend in any area where there's an opportunity to be creative with technology and wearables, the, the creativity in wearables is going towards cosplay and like that's great and cool and there are a lot of tutorials out there, many of which I created and like that are still good online. So I feel good about that. It's just part of my portfolio. I'm kind of amazed that you avoided the cosplay scene. I mean, if, if you hadn't really found the work that you had, that would have been a pretty obvious outlet for you, at least to sort of, you know, like work, if not making your own stuff, working with some of these people to build their costumes. Out. Yeah, and I do occasionally take on like a contract job. I did like a LED jacket for Buzz Aldrin for Colbert show, and like I'll work with a um, like a that's that doesn't qual- that's, but that's not like, doing, like a Sailor Moon outfit for somebody. Uh, that's no, a, right? That's an it's, astronaut. It's expensive work, right? To yeah. build electronics into costumes and stuff, and cosplayers are doing their work largely because of their passion. Yeah. And they don't have a lot of money to throw around, like paying someone to put LEDs in their stuff. And also, I mean, like Burning Man people always ask, and like I just never want those clients. So why? Because you know they're gonna bring your stuff and really stress test it to the ultimate, yeah. and um, it's really hard to make stuff super durable. Really hard. And oh, also, so you you sort of get get mad at you if it if it doesn't make it like they through could, a day yeah. Dust. And since yeah. if I'm not gonna be there to support it, yeah. you know, it's tough. So whereas I only work like with a professional costume designer who does stage work with musicians on stage, and and she subcontracts the electronics to me, I will go out of my way to explain and give instructions for how to make it not break or how to change the battery and go through the. I don't know, the, the professional information that needs to be communicated. Whereas like the Burning Man clients are just less professional clients. Yeah. So their expectations are not realistic. And then their uh, use, they, don't, they like, don't follow instructions necessarily. I hate to generalize, but. <laughs> I think it's probably fair that Burning Man people probably don't follow directions. Yeah, I just won't take a, I just won't take a, a job like that. It's interesting, though, that people were sort of pointing you in that direction um because was well, there women in technology so isn't it just an easier story to tell if i'm interested in like stereotypical woman things i also get uh like told that i'm you know or asked to speak to to like small children regularly and like although although like i do see myself as a role model i like when have i ever shown any evidence of being good with like actual one-on-one kids right like i can teach them online through tutorials but like don't put me in a room with a bunch of them yeah i teach grad students because you know they're grown-ups I think it's just like, hey, here's a person who found a cool thing to do that's, you know, under the umbrella of STEM. And that's that's almost enough. Yeah. Because, you know, schools have realized, like, how important it is to teach that thing. And this is a way of saying, hey, you can do this. And this doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be, you know, the IT person. Like, you can actually do something fun with this. Right. And that's that's definitely an overarching theme in my work and yeah. my interest in making it and sharing online is for sure to inspire people to just see that they can use it as a creative outlet for whatever they're interested in and that it's okay if your interests branch across different topics. Adafruit was probably part of that too. I mean, they were making stuff that was kid-friendly. Oh, that, that yeah. was one of their goals. Mm-hmm, for sure, yeah. Easy to solder through whole components. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm, comes pre-programmed for something that does something neat. Yeah. You feel like you got pigeonholed into wearables slash fashion because you're a woman in technology? Well, so, uh, sort of. If I think back of, like, you know, what I've always been pressured to, like, be labeled as, it's easy to... That's Of course, and that was an emerging field and emerging buzzword in the yeah. last few years. So it's it's easy to 
um, tie tie the market trend to like a an interest to label put a label on my work yeah. or a theme and that was my job title at Adafruit director of wearables even if there are people trying to put labels on it like you've done a it seems like you've done a pretty good job doing what you want to do and yeah. being pretty fluid yeah, in terms true. of where you're doing it because you know you've worked for different places you continue to work for different places you're doing teaching on the side like how many how many jobs do you have at the moment just two just the just the full time uh, autodesk you know content creator job and yeah. then i've i've taught this class at school of visual arts for the past i think this is my 6th year teaching an intro to like arduino and crafting uh to graduate product designers. So they might have 3D modeling software, but they've never touched a line of code before. So they have a lot of creative ideas and I get to help them unlock their electronic potential, create functional prototypes of their product designs, understand like security implications for internet connected devices, stuff like that. And really get hands-on creative novice feedback on the online materials that I create at my day job. I wouldn't call it my nine to five. I work from home. So it's (laughs) whatever hours, but um, uh, where I create, you know, Intro Arduino, intro to Internet of Things, intro to knitting, intro to jewelry making, course, online coursework that is serving an online audience, but I use it in my physical classroom as well. I really get the feedback on, first eyes on the content that I'm creating with my students who I use as my guinea pigs, basically. But since they're so dialed in creatively, they can um, provide really high-level feedback. Uh, I'd like my content to be a, like enjoyed by the widest possible variety of people and age groups, of course. And it, believe it or not, I mean, it helps that these, I call them, yeah, like creative novices will help make my work better for like eight-year-old kids even. Most of the teaching that you're doing is for, is teaching technology to creatives versus teaching part of the creative process to technologists? It goes both ways and you have to anticipate both kinds of questions or feedback or it seems like those are two entirely different worlds they are yeah but you can speak to both of them if you're entertaining enough right (laughs) (laughs) if you ask questions that stimulate creativity like creative people aren't going to be put off by that and that helps like technical people then become more creative and then if the technical people already know what they're reading and they they seem like it's repeating something they already know, they'll just like tell me something more they know in the comments. And that's part of enjoyment is adding something to what okay. you're finding, right? And don't you find this about you've written online for a long time? <laughs> I have. If you leave, I, I, I don't find I don't find comment sections to necessarily be um, constructive. Not but that's always my own experience. unless you lead your feedback. And this is something I teach my graduate students. Yeah. It's like if you go into some kind of critique or professional um, evaluation situation, you're gonna present your work to anyone online or otherwise. If you don't direct the feedback you want, you won't sure. get any valuable feedback. So online, if you publish tutorials and you're like, yeah, so I made like this default kind of color scheme or whatever, but I'm sure that you guys could make it so much better. And you only really develop it 85% of the way, then it leaves this room for people to add something of their own to it. And yep. they, they're like, oh, well, I could make it better. And even if they're telling you I could do that better, what they're really meaning is like, I'm inspired by your work and I see where I could fit into that process or where it fits into my life. And so, you know, if you don't take everything, you to take things in the positive way. They're not always men in the, the positive way and probably <laughs> like just doing what I do. But the engagement's real, right? If, <sighs> even if they're telling you what for, they still are like, if it's, if it's, I'm talking about electronics yeah. tutorials where yeah, they're yeah. actually, they're like, well, actually. I'm just saying, I think I, our worlds are a little bit different in that standpoint where I don't yeah, think yeah, people yeah. are necessarily attempting to comment on articles in constructive ways. And there's also a fine line, I think, between, or I don't know, maybe maybe there isn't, but there's there's people offering what, you know, they 
deemed to be genuinely constructive criticism. And then there's also people who are just like, hey, look at all of the stuff that I know about this thing. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in the making scene, it's pretty easy to just say like, well, show us what you make. And if there really isn't anything behind those comments, then the person is usually more quiet then because you got to bring something to the table. Is there overlap though? I mean, you know, if, if you're, and this is a super broad question, maybe there's no way to answer it, but if you're if you're a creative person, if you're a crafty person who's never written a line of code before, um, it, are those skills helpful? Do they translate at all? Or are those just two entirely different worlds? Well, you'd be surprised how similar like uh, computer programs are to, say, knitting patterns or yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that's fair. other types of um, logical, repetitive organization of information yeah. instructions, right? And like woodworking plans like are similar to fabric patterns. So I think... Any way that you get a chance to work on your, like, physical, like, I don't know, the abstraction of physical ideas into code is useful for figuring out any other project. The ability to sort of see the broader picture while you're making something piece by piece. Yeah. And then my students always uh, say how much more they understand things like coffee makers and, you know, like devices with Mm. embedded electronics they see in their everyday lives after they've even just written just blinked an LED with an Arduino, right? Like, like I understand so much more about how sensors and stuff work and when I'm frustrated with them, what might be going on in a way that would allow me to solve the problem. Yeah, there is a sense you get, I mean, for, for me, the closest thing in writing is, is I, I think I've always felt like the most exciting part was when you start connecting two seemingly disparate pieces and you find the through line between the two of them. Or if you go to the city for the first time and you're, and you're exploring it and then you start connecting different streets and realize something larger from there so you're opening yourself up to a whole different world and not even a whole different world but like see, seeing the things that you see on a daily basis in, in a different way yeah or just being able to enjoy other people's creativity in that field yeah. by dipping your toe in um and then unlocking the another realm of inspiration yeah. that could then influence your work more right i end up talking about this a lot on my show and i think a lot of it just sort of has to do with the stress of, of my own work whether it's external or internal, and just the stress of living in New York City. But I often find myself talking to people about mindfulness, taking in your surroundings. When I get really down about my job, I have to remember like how lucky I am to do what I what I do for a living. And and maybe this is sort of a really sort of physical, real world version of that. In that there are these things around us that we take for granted that we use all the time. We're both holding electronic devices, and there's a TV, and all these things are electronic devices and just getting a little bit of insight into that really helps you appreciate the world around you a little bit more makes it more fun for sure and less like it's controlling you right because if you understand how stuff works then you'd be less afraid of it and less controlled by it when you were in school and and people were pushing you in a direction was there a clear path forward from there i mean was it obvious where the world (laughs) of like fashion or or you know clothing and or textiles and electronics converged. Academia. Academia. Yeah, it was. It was still. Academia that's always at the, the answer. Time. That is. Some, that's always like for every single. I mean, that's that's just the way like the college industrial system works. <laughs> yeah. But that's like the bullshit answer for like er- everything is. Well, like, I don't know. I I don't think it for me it was a pro- yeah. like a product of the of the co- what do you call it college industrial college. company because I went to art school here. I was at Parsons okay. School of Design and. Going to grad school after undergrad was not a common thing yeah. for the Parsons kids to do. And it wasn't like academia, academia in that we didn't do a lot of writing and, and it wasn't, you know, um, it's not 
it, it wasn't a big school with research programs and all this kind of thing yeah. where, I, where I uh didn't had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated from college and I was completely petrified that I would have to work in advertising if I wanted to stay in New York City I was like oh my god I'm only really good at like creatively putting together things that would be applicable for advertising yeah. agencies and I really uh, I think it would crush me straight out of college and yeah. I really don't want to um I don't want to hone my skills in that area. I don't want to – I want to – I'm going to go to grad school. I have this window of time. I'm still young and I still have energy. Impressionable, yeah. But also then, like if I don't do this now and if I get set down that path, I might never be able to change it. Sure. And I wasn't willing to go into debt to go to grad school either. So I wasn't about to hang around here and uh, do what my poor students are doing and chunk down, you know, 40K a year yeah. plus living expenses to be here. So I moved to Arizona and Arizona. joined a PhD program at ASU. It was like a research program. So I was basically being, you know, more or less paid to be going to grad school. Not very much. Enough to cover living expenses in Phoenix. In Arizona, which yep. I assume are uh, super high. And so I could keep like exploring basically without, I thought without crushing myself. And I mean, it was okay. You went to art school for undergrad. What, what was your graduate study? I joined this PhD program called Arts, Media, and Engineering, and I only spent one year in it and was told, Becky, you have to stop making things and keep like write more papers. And You so were that, making things for class or they were like, this is taking away from time that you should be in class and studying? Well, and doing... PhD program, you have like your research yeah. uh, credits, which are like, you know, the work that you do that's exploratory that then you write papers about that you apply you to apply to yeah. academic conferences that you then fly to and the university play, pays you pays a lot of money to fly you to the places and the professors get to go with you. And and they were like, Becky, you have to stop making things? And and write more papers. And, and I, at the time I had started writing for the Make Magazine blog. Yeah. I was like super psyched right when I graduated from college to get offered um, a blogging position for yeah. them. And I was like over the moon. And so I just it was like my first year of, of writing for the magazine, just a couple blog posts a week. And sometimes it would be something I was trying myself with electronics. And sometimes it would just be other people's cool projects, you know, you know, about blogging. I do. And, um, <laughs> and my professors would be like, what is this silly thing you're doing on the yeah. internet with the blogging? And I'm like, it's it's writing. Didn't yeah. you, you said you wanted me to do writing. Like, this is writing. And they're like, yes, but I'm like, it's writing that people see. Uh-huh. And that there's like active discussions going on with enthusiastic people, not like send your 20-page paper that you padded with 10 extra pages to make it longer to some academic journal that no one's ever going to read. There was this like idea that it, this, it was almost this like fast food version of writing if you yeah. were just like, putting it up quickly yeah, yeah, on the yeah. internet. Totally fa- fast food. Yeah, we used to call it when you had a really good headline, we called it fish food. So, so you got out of that. Uh, I dropped out of the PhD, transferred into the MFA in sculpture because I made friends with a professor there who was doing Arduino stuff with her students. And uh, but I was a total misfit in the graduate sculpture. I, program. I made friends with the professor as a really bad reason, probably to get into any. Oh, <laughs> well, I've always been teacher's pet. That's really. Yeah. That's yeah. And um, I didn't fit in. There was you know it was like a pretty uh, academic MFA art sculpture program so like my classmates are like what do you mean she doesn't know how to weld and like they really didn't uh accept me into their clan there were only like yeah. five other graduate students in that program they really didn't accept me into their clan until they figured out i could help them with their websites and make their sculptures interactive and then everybody was nice to me so but, they were like making like big metal sculptures uh-huh. yeah and oh. big silicone sculptures and big yeah, very traditional metalworking. Going to graduate and, school for this and casting. Yeah, like to be you know fine artists, which is really more like art professors who have a fine art practice on the side. Yeah. is the more practical um, like career path. Like I said, kind of it's stuff. like it's that whole university system that it's like the yeah. one thing you can really do with this is teach. It's teach, yeah, and, and that's a viable thing that lots of people do. Like, well, sure, we all need great. teachers. It does seem like there are certain 
you know, I, I was a creative writing major and I knew a lot of history majors and it's the same thing. It's like, what's the most feasible thing you can do for this? Like either you can become a very successful novelist or you can continue to teach creative writing forever. Right. And it's just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And sometimes they go hand in hand and, yeah. and like one doesn't negate the other necessarily, sure. but it's like, you know, aspiring to be a pop star, like yeah. the percentage of, of people who go to get their MFA, who then become professional fine artists with, careers that support their work is very, very yeah. small. And it's that argument that like, you know, obviously like a college or, or a university isn't a trade school, but it should prepare people for jobs yeah, in the outside well, there world. Were, you know, there were, uh, I, because it was a place you could build a lot of big things, there yeah. were people who were interested in doing public art, which is actually like a lot more viable than yeah. the pop stardom of like, uh, you know, any of these... Uh, like a coons. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of because I hate him so There's much. A, I know he's the worst. Oh. There's a giant balloon dog right across the street. Is there really? So yeah. Sorry. Um, I, I, <laughs> it's okay not to like things. I've been following you on, yeah, on Twitter. It's well, okay. It's okay not yeah, to like yeah. Jeff he's, Koons. He's pretty, he's pretty high on my list. I think a lot of people don't. And, and, but, and the beautiful thing is I don't think he cares. He's it doesn't a matter very if he cares. Wealthy, I, he's a very wealthy man. Good, yeah, good He's not going to get sad if you... If he finds out you don't like him. No, it's like it's like um, a lot of David Lynch films. It's like I understand why people yeah, think yeah, it's yeah. good. Like Eggplant, I understand why people yeah. like it. It's just not for me. Sure. Not my taste. And that's okay. So you go into sculpture again because you – I know. dropped out of that program too. But that okay. was because of the subprime mortgage crisis. So like I said, it wasn't going to go into debt for grad school. ASU is a state school. It's 2008. The subprime mortgage crisis happens. Yeah. Arizona gets hit really hard because they've got a lot of McMansion complexes with with subprime mortgages. The university starts putting faculty on furlough and like trying to like penny scrape anywhere they can. And they take a look at all students who were on like automatic in-state tuition. And I was one of those students because I was a graduate student who was uh, offered in-state tuition in exchange for like teaching. I was teaching like an undergraduate digital design course at that time. And they made me submit like two years of bank records and all of this crazy stuff to like reapply for residency just so that they could like find people to deny residency and charge extra money for the semester because they were so out of money. And so I think they they cited two pieces of evidence. I had a car that was – not technically registered to me, but was my car that was still registered in Connecticut. And I had left the state to go and like, so I had ATM receipts from Indonesia where they were like, you weren't in Arizona. Clearly you don't live here. That'll be an extra $13,000, please. And I was like, you guys suck. They were looking for any excuse Yeah, of course. And so I paid the extra money and I, and I withdrew from the program. So that I paid the extra money and you withdrew? Well, it was for that semester because they were like, Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, you know, you remember it was a bad time. I for... do remember. I mean, I was out of school at that point, but it was. Do yes. you remember the news articles? It was yes. just, yeah. I was a so... writer living in New York, which had its own. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so I, um, I wasn't gonna, yeah, it was, it was a really, really good free MFA. It was gonna, like yeah. the people there were really nice. It wasn't the same reason that I, you know, I dropped out of the PhD program because it was hurting my soul. And the MFA program feel, was really nice. Do you feel like these like external forces, really gave me an excuse to really get out there I and mean, yeah, maybe sure. you wouldn't have been proactive about mm-hmm. it otherwise yeah because i was like approaching whatever that age is when you can't be on your parents health insurance anymore yeah. and i've got these terrible knees i've had five surgeries on my knees i need more surgeries on my knees i can't not have coverage for any for five minutes because i will break my knee doing the stupidest thing just you know walking yeah. walking in a straight line or attempting to so i was like 
I was thinking about dropping out of school entirely, so I wasn't going to be eligible for their health insurance, and I wasn't going to be eligible to be on my parents' health insurance either. And because I was part-time blogging for Make, I put them to an ultimatum. And I said, and well, and my boss at the time really helped present the ultimatum on my behalf, which is if you want Becky, you have to hire her full-time and give her health insurance because she can't work for you freelance because she has these needs. And it was before the pre-existing condition thing, and and so, you know... um, and they really pushed that forth. And I think it was me and Brian Jepson, if you've met Brian Jepson before, were the only two like remote O'Reilly employees yeah. at the time, which was very um, fortuitous for me. And so I like I dropped out of grad school and I went full time at, at Make Magazine, uh, which also had Craft Magazine at the time. And I was doing the video production for Craft. That's pretty edifying, though, that you were just doing like a few blog posts a day and they wanted you so bad that they're willing to almost changed the system a little bit to bring you on board. Yes, it was very nice, very flattering, <laughs> yeah. And it was my first full-time job out of school. Right out of school, you found something that I really kind of fit. That, that Right out of two years in right grad school, two years, which was, you know, after like... Sure, but... So I feel like I you, put off... But even so, you know, I mean, that, that's still it's still pretty good. I mean, I, I, was, uh, I was technically an editorial, but my first full-time job out of college was shipping boxes for editorial. I applied for an editorial. This is actually how we got into tech writing was uh, I moved out to New York. I had an internship. I was writing about music a lot at the time and applied to – I didn't want to leave New York because there's this sense that if you leave New York that it's kind of a bit of like a personal failure basically. And I know that I like, probably would have had to like go back to California. I lived with my parents for a little while. So I applied to all these jobs and the first one that came up was for a laptop magazine. So – I got an editorial assistant job, and it was literally like sending computers back and forth. Um, but you were, but you were able to find something like right, pretty much right in your wheelhouse. It sounds like. Yeah, well, I mean, I worked up to it, right? So yeah. Like in those two years that I was in Arizona, I had started and continued writing for Make Blog and the Craft Magazine blog. Started the Craft Scene YouTube channel, and like was organizing, doing a lot of organizing for the digital editorial team. So you know, you make yourself indispensable, and yeah. then they can't, and then. Yeah. They treat you like you are, I guess. And uh, they were that was a really great time to work there and a really fun crew of people, uh, many of whom I'm still um, in touch with and whose work I really respect. So it's it was an awesome time to meet great people. And I would go to every Maker Fair and uh, hang out at the office in Sebastopol occasionally, which is like a real head trip. I got that taste of Northern California life yeah. and, and the tech scene in San Francisco without ever, without ever having to live there, yeah. which I found really um, enlightening. Do you feel like you were sort of there for like the really the beginning of the maker bubble? The beginning? I don't know. The middle, for sure. Sure. But it, but it does feel like now in 2017, it does feel like we're in a very different place as yeah. far as the maker scene is concerned. Yeah. I mean, it's um, so mainstream. There's there's niches, which is awesome. Yeah. Subculture yeah. is great, right? You feel like it's continuing to sort of like accelerate in that direction? Yeah. I mean, don't you get like this ballooning and culling all the time of of cultural events people be interested in, and then a flood of people will come in yeah. to find some more like... Um, subcategories and then maybe move on to balloon into a different area. It's, it's hard for me to gauge because I'm in this weird position where I'm like sort of on the periphery but you know also follow these things closely that I can't really tell how popular something is like how big like Raspberry Pi is you were talking yeah. about Arduino before oh my god Raspberry Pi is so popular yeah yeah how many millions of units have they shipped now yeah. like you can look on their website and yeah. find out but 
It's a lot. It's a lot. And I remember when it was a huge deal that there were like 100,000 Arduino boards, which there are many more than that now. There was like this period a few years ago where, you know, like Radio Shack, God bless them, thought that stocking Arduino boards in their store was going to be the thing that saved them. And all these like libraries were trying to figure out what to do with the physical locations. And the idea was just like open maker spaces. So it did become this really mainstream moment. And in some ways, a lot of that's kind of shaken out. Yeah, because the business models have to yeah. have to like hold up and be sustainable, right? And community yeah. is a hard thing to maintain if there aren't active people who, if it's not working. Right? Yeah. Like, look at Tech Shop. Tech Shop, which is a chain of maker spaces based out of San Francisco. The consumer 3D printing market is kind of, I don't want to say non-existent, but it's certainly not where it was before. So again, it's, it's sort of hard for me to gauge whether the, these are all signs of like, you know, maybe it's not as high up as it used to be. I, I think you're kind of implying that it's it's around. It's just maybe more niche than it was before. And that there are a lot more woven into the fabric of society. Yeah. And then there are more niches for yeah. more interests. Because if, you know, if you have a million more people interested in Arduino, you're going to get um, subcultures and Facebook groups around um, the subculture of people who only build guitar pedals. And once you get a critical yeah. mass of those people, they can bounce around ideas and create a lot of new cool stuff. And it can happen, that can happen with neuroscientists and that can happen with costumers and cosplayers. And only when you get that mainstream appeal to attract the people with the other interests, do you get then subgroups of people with the, the, at the cross sections of the interests, which is yeah. how you can build more community. Right? It's, it's not that there's like a, maybe a giant cohesive maker scene in the way that there was before. It's that all these existing scenes have maker elements to them. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And that's great. That's, that's awesome. People like know what you're saying. Then you're like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, sprinkle yeah. a little bit of LEDs in there. And they're not like, whoa, hold it there. Yeah. Like it's uh, more. Uh, All right, Thomas Edison. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've heard the word patent a lot less <laughs> um, in, in casual conversation, more yeah. on Shark Tank and less in like, well, we should patent yeah. that. And instead it's like. That's cool. Is it going to be at the next party? Was any of the growth of the maker scene driven by the economic crisis? Was it driven by like, I mean, it's a hobby, but like people, but there is a, you know, there is a sense of like people making things more for themselves. Sure. I mean, anytime there's an economic upheaval, you're going to see people make changes, right? Whether they go back to school or they start a business. So just like whatever the inciting incident is, it could be good or bad. It causes people to make changes to try to support themselves. So um, I think the proliferation of the maker scene, especially in the crowdfunding area, if you look at like Kickstarter hardware projects or just like hardware startups in general have ballooned out. There's a lot more venture capital um, understanding of the hardware space and its challenges that enables uh, more businesses to, to flourish and less to fail. So that's a really cool part of the maker scene that Hmm. is a really important part is that economic part. Like, I mean, I worked at Adafruit. I saw them go from like less than a million dollar business to yeah. like however many, like lots of millions of, like, you know, the company quadrupled, quintuple, yeah. what's it called when you multiply it by 30. It's amazing to see. And that, that I feel like is just a microcosm of like the entire market for DIY electronics hardware, which is maybe a, a, a reference point for the general interest in electronics is the people who are um, putting 
get like views on a website is one, but like dollars in a shopping cart uh, for the actual DIY parts is another metric you can use for how interested people are. And that market has grown hugely in the last 10 years. It's lowering the barrier of entry. It's looking at these people who are successful, who, you know, aren't multi-billion dollar business people are able to start up these companies. And because of scalable manufacturing and prototyping and, and Kickstarter, there's not really that much standing between me and making my own devices. Yeah. And we're getting, we're seeing the barriers come down about, you know, um, a lot more Americans are understanding hardware manufacturing in Shenzhen and a lot more Chinese manufacturing uh, companies are understanding the American market. So you're seeing a lot better lines of communication and a lot like, therefore, um, hopefully fewer failed crowdfunding campaigns or yeah, just better engineering back and forth, like easier to get. It's never been easier to manufacture your own electronic product. That's pretty cool. And I think it's a really important part and exciting part of the DIY tech scene. Um, it, when you and when you blend it on a site like Instructables with food and crafts and mm. um, in all different disciplines, it's it sort of, um, I don't know, it adds to the excitement of it all. But yeah. I can see a clear difference in, in the last 10 years in like, you know, a lot more development in the maker tech scene than in the maker craft scene. I mean, it does seem to be pretty welcoming too in these overlaps reconnected with you because of our mutual friend colleen and like she's i don't really consider her to be like a techie person but she does a lot of craft stuff and she was has sort of become a part of your scene it's all of these different people with all of these different interests there's just this place where they all seem to overlap yeah colleen's awesome i taught her some arduino she's really she's got that spirit i mean it's hard to teach it but that's what the maker scene tries to teach is like hey there's all this stuff that if you only tried to learn it, it would really add to what you're yeah. already excited about. So here, try it out. That's really the spirit that I think we would wish everyone comes to our content to, with. But Colleen has it just all over the place. She, there's nothing she can't learn how to do. It's important to be open and welcoming to people. Yeah. You know, and... and well, I mean, and to make a point and to understand that it, it that intimidation like will limit people's exploration. Yeah. Um, I get a strong sense of that kind of thing from my graduate students more so than small children. They're so self-conscious. And so they want everything they put out to be perfect and they don't understand yet how to try something and not be good at it yet, but work towards it. And like they need a lot of uh, yeah. confidence check-ins and you know, checkpoints to say, did you do this? Like, you should feel good about this right now. Instead, yeah. of, like, do you feel scared? Are you hunching your shoulders up? Like, uh, getting over the physicality, emotional and uh, like posture wise of learning something new that's intimidating. It involves a lot of emotional and em like empathy. Yeah, I, I, this is something that we talk about a lot on the show, when, when, especially when I'm talking to artists and people who are from. Um, you know, maybe like rural areas, like certainly not not cities where there's already kind of like a lot of culture and interesting things happening. But that moment in your life when you finally like, oh, I found my group of weirdos. Like I found these people. Like I'm not the only one like this. And and it seems like the maker scene is that for a lot of people, but it's that for a lot of people across a really wide spectrum. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really nice. I first felt that on the internet for yeah. sure. Because I grew up in a very rural place, but I had the internet from a very young age. I was like that, just that sweet spot of where I'm not like a touchscreen native, but I had an unsupervised access to BBSs on our on our DOS machine, which really, you know, and my mom was in IRC chat rooms and I like learned a lot about online communities. So your parents were nerds? Well, my dad was a newspaper editor. So okay. it's like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's like a... 
can use it for word processing and where did your interest in electronics come from that's a good question i I mean, I know. Okay, so I was always interested in technology, and not necessarily building yeah. electronics. But I, I was good at physics. I really liked the, um, the like a- applied math. Math is kind of boring, but physics is like math with moving objects and mm-hmm. stuff. So I thought that was always fun, and I had, an, I was pretty good at it. And then I was in a V club, so I was good with cameras and I was interested in photography and videography and I learned how to do some video editing and then my parents got me a video camera like a firewire video camera for my birthday but I was like well but like guys how am I supposed to edit the footage because our computer doesn't have a firewire card so they got me the firewire card my dad comes home from work one night he, you know, he worked at the paper so he got home at like 10 o'clock I've got the computer tower open on the floor of the dining room and I'm putting in the FireWire card and he just flips out. It's like, what are you doing? Why is the computer on the floor open like that? Like, that thing is so expensive. And I'm like, you got me this FireWire card to go with my camera. I'm just yeah. putting it in the computer. Look, I, I like, I grounded myself on the frame. I'm not going to break it. And he's like, if that doesn't work, when you plug it back in, yada, yada, yada. And so I put it back together, renewed the DHCP lease and the internet's back up and everything's fine. And ever since then... They just both ask me all the computer questions. The parents are both very tech savvy, but still never any more doubt since that moment when I was like 15 years old and got my first FireWire card so that I could run Premiere at home instead of editing footage at school where I you know, had limited access. So I, that that was the first time, I guess, that I knew that I could... I could handle electronic stuff because, you know, the computer had circuit boards and I wasn't afraid of them. And then in college, I took a physical computing class, which is like the artsiest way to be introduced to electronics ever. It's like, hey, kids, like we used basic stamps. We made LEDs blink and then we immediately put the LEDs inside like soft toys and stuff. So um, very uh, creative introduction to technology, both on the you know, the, the the reason I wanted to open the computer in the first place was I could make, make movies. Obviously, some people do come to that a little bit later in life, but there are two very different kinds of people. There's a person for whom, like, you know, a, a piece of electronics is, I don't want to say a sacred object, but, like, impenetrable. And then there's the other type of person. Like, um, there seems to be this through line in everybody, almost everybody you talk to who got really into electronics or who became a computer scientist has that moment where they were like on the floor and something is splayed out all over the place. And some, and they notice that somebody else is freaking out about it and you're <laughs> like, what's the big deal? It's going to work when I put it back together. So what brought you back to New York? Well, uh, in some way, okay, so you said that if you if you leave New York, it's like failing. And yes. Yeah. In a certain way, I was like, oh, but I'm going to grad school. So, like, you know, not failing. Uh, and when I was leaving Arizona, I definitely feel like I was failing. I'm like, I'm going to drop out of the second graduate program. I had a failing relationship at the time. And I'm like, I have to flee. This place is awful. I'm it sunburned always, all the it time. It always hits it once, doesn't it? It's like uh, bad things always happen at the I same time. It's not, you know, like it's a really strange place to live. I've never lived in suburbia before. Yeah. I didn't really like it. wasn't for me. I can understand why other people like suburban it. Suburban Phoenix. I was in, yeah, I was in yeah. Tempe, which is a suburb of Phoenix. And um, I felt like I needed to flee. I couldn't, it wasn't going to stay, like there was nothing else there for me. And so I thought really strong, um, sincerely about moving to San Francisco yeah. because it was either, because I was working for the magazine at the time, which was, you know, yeah. based and out of NorCal. Yeah. And, and I had, other than New York, it was the city I I had known the best because I had been there the most times, or I felt like I you know had similar vibe. Um, but you know, it's really hilly, and I, I got is. those knees. It's true. It's not good. The knees are really bad. And I um, ultimately felt like I had more of a base here, more people that I knew. Um, if I was going to be retreating from a failed 
like grad program and failed relationship, um, it was going to feel better to be in a place where I knew the streets at least, or yeah. I could go to my favorite pizza place. And so, yeah, I just, um, and cause I didn't have to like live any particular place for my job. I figured why not put, you know, move to a place with one of the highest cost of living and the most expensive. Yeah. Taxes. This is a place that you move to because you have a job here. <laughs> You're making life really difficult for yourself. Yeah. And I moved it and it was, um, it was well, and I lived by myself. It wasn't the first time I lived by myself yeah. in New York. It was the first time I lived by myself in New York and paid my own rent. Uh huh. Yeah, because when I was in college, my parents were supporting me, which was very, very kind of me. Yeah. Um, it, I don't know. It was great. I found a great deal in a place in East Williamsburg. My landlord was a retired electrical engineer. East Williamsburg is Bushwick, by the way. For it, but like it only east of Bushwick of of Bushwick Ave, and I wasn't east of Bushwick Ave, so it was like a little bit complicated. East Williamsburg is like on Craigslist, what they call. That's true. It, to make it not sound like yeah, Bushwick. and Clinton Hill, where I live, is what they call Bedsty to make it sound oh, more like Clinton Hill. Fort Greene. But I actually do yeah. live in Clinton Hill. But that was twelve years ago. It's probably very different than it is now. I'm sure. I've lived there for five years, and it's yeah, it's a lot different than it was when I moved in. Even how much you feel like living in New York, sort of having that constraint, has impacted your career path? There's that tenacity. You have to have a crazy amount of tenacity to live in New York City because if you don't, you have to like pack up and move out if you don't make bank, right? There's like, a tenacity, but but there's also and this is something that I've grappled with since I moved here is that this isn't really a place where you can necessarily take too many risks. If you fail in, in New York City, if you're like, I'm going to quit my job and just start my own thing, then you're you're screwed. There's no safety net. No, of course not. And so that's that's part of the reason I, I am not an entrepreneur. I've, I've worked for, uh, you know, like big not big, like medium-sized company after medium-sized company that will support my, my maker efforts rather than risk it all on a Kickstarter campaign or a, a startup that I yeah. run myself. I also, you know, I I'm, I'm, don't come from an independently wealthy family. I don't have a wealthy spouse. Like in New York, in order to take risks, you have to have some kind of privilege. Yeah. And either that's you say you lived in a cheap place and you saved up a lot of money or you, or you have one of those aforementioned benefits going for you. Um, or you find a way to squeeze in your personal interest into your professional situation. So there's a lot of like universities or uh, facilities that will employ people to run their makerspace lab or whatever. And then the people who work there use the facilities to run their Etsy shop or um, whatever business they've got on the side so that they can find satisfaction through the extra perks that their job yeah. offers. But um, yeah, I agree that it is hard, really hard to take professional risks here. And so the, the st- because the stakes are high, it means that the planning has to be top rate and the people have to be the ideas have to be good and uh, I like that I like that the signal to noise ratio here has to be good or or uh, you can't afford to stick around the other thing that you have going for you though like when, when you're in 20s is that that extra bit of energy you know it's easy to have a dead-end job and then go home and really and work on something and that you know maybe you don't have that in quite the same way that you do in your 30s have you pursued that? I mean, it seems like you've you've got this interest and you're really kind of right in that cultural zeitgeist people are clearly interested in what you're doing that you probably could have not only taken that risk, but sort of had a built-in following. Sure. Um, I I look at like quality of life stuff. If I had a great idea that I thought would make an awesome product yeah. that I wanted to build into a company, I would do it. I, I don't, yeah. I'd never swear that off as a, as a great uh, thing to do in life is to start your own business. My parents just started their own business after retirement. It was their dream to turn this 1700s farmhouse into a bed and breakfast. They've been working on it for the past five years, like putting in more bathrooms, doing every bit of um, tiling in the uh, like themselves, and they just opened. And so it's incredibly inspiring to see people launch businesses that they're passionate about. And But I'm more passionate about making content than I am about being my own. In a certain way, I have 
I am my own boss creatively. So finding uh, places that support my creative work okay. then have enough freedom is almost is, – is like equivalent to being my own boss creatively without the financial risk or you, the – You don't feel yeah. like it would be more creatively and, and personally rewarding to have really just your own thing. I do have my own thing. I have a huge portfolio of yeah. awesome projects that have like a really strong theme and through line of yeah. – uh, it being a really fun thing to try something new and learn about technology and craft. So like it bugs me a little bit that it doesn't all live in like one place online besides my website. You know, yeah. like I'd love like one searchable database that's really easy to explore because um, you know, maybe I should just make my own website a little nicer, I guess. But um, it does make me feel really good that my that I have stuff that's out there publicly visible. Like people know what I'm working on because I'm always publishing something new. So people say they're like, oh, you were really productive. And it's like, well, you were probably productive too, but maybe I didn't see – uh, all that you were working on or maybe you were working on a book and yeah, and uh, that kind of stuff gets kind of – It's so just like ingrained in what I do now that I, I, I don't understand how people can work on something for that period of time. It's really – for me to like go home and, and point to all the things that I created and that are out in the world, I mean I feel like I like actually spent my time doing something productive but I – Does you assign some of your self-value on how much work you put out into the world? Oh, yeah. And interaction and, and the feedback that I get from it too but you never – I do the podcast because it's a thing that's just my own thing that I get to do like top to bottom. I like what I do for a living, but it's always within some broader confines of, of somebody else. And, and, you know, there are, there are things that I can write about and there are things that I can't write about. And there are, you know, there's creative risks that I can't necessarily take under a larger umbrella. Right. Although I would say I can make, take more creative risks because I'm not an entrepreneur or yeah. Yeah, because I, you're not going to be homeless if you take the wrong risk. Right. And I'm not um, – I see a rising trend, which is a really encouraging trend of some like independent content creators on YouTube and or other places of the web, like making a living on uh, like Patreon support plus like um, sponsored projects. So they're finding ways to uh, be their own boss without producing a product, but uh, a physical product, but creating um, – a content following that supports them through, you know, you know, all the changes in marketing now that marketers are a lot more comfortable mm -hmm. providing independent sponsorships to YouTube creators. That's a lot more normal yeah. than it used Sponsored to be. Content. Sponsor content and, and what do you call Patreon? It's not crowdfunding, crowd support, whatever. They, yeah. There's a word for it now. But, you know, the combination of like affiliate revenue, sponsor content and direct fan support is like a viable model for a handful of creators online that, um, really have that sweet thing dialed in. And I feel like I've got, I, I have, I have it better than that because I have like this, although, you know, of course I'm creating content that serves um, Autodesk products. Like I'm working on Tinkercad circuits is like this simulator that was merged into Tinkercad from um, its previous product history as uh, one, two, 3d circuits. And before that circuits.io and it's like an Arduino and other electronic simulator software that like I get to use to teach people Arduino both like virtually and if they have the board in front of them. And so like, although I feel like I've taught people Arduino online before, you know, for the last 10 years, every year there's new tools that are coming out that are make it easier for a wider variety of people to learn stuff. And so uh, mixed in with that, I get to also publish inspirational content that that is driven by my own ideas and wouldn't be good if I weren't passionate about it. So it might as well be whatever I'm passionate about because I've developed whatever this history of, I suppose people think I have okay taste if they keep letting me do whatever uh, product projects I want to do as part of my job. But um, it, it's like a permanent content sponsorship. <laughs> so yeah. like, I don't, I don't need to be always like creating sales sheets about my work. I, I just can do my thing, which is really 
liberating. So I don't know. I guess if I lost my job, like knock on wood, I, I would figure out some way to support myself with my work that that isn't at quite as uh, sweet of a deal. Yeah. But I find it really um, stressful to have to worry about chasing after freelance people oh, yeah. with invoices. My boyfriend's oh, that's, a, that's a whole a freelancer second like, job. Yeah, and it, it's I'm easily distracted. And so um, if I can focus on one team of people also, like I'm not – I'm an introvert. It's another reason cosplay's hard because I, yeah. I don't like to go to like group gatherings. I like that I get to work with smaller groups of people. And if I were freelance, I'd always be working with a bunch of different people. And so it's nice. It's a nice work if you can get it. Yeah. Do you feel like you're doing exactly what you want to do? I don't know. Does anyone ever know what they want I, to do? I don't know. I mean, I feel I, like I, I do a lot of what I want to do and not yeah. a lot of what I don't want to do. Maybe this is just the way I'm wired, but I'm always like, okay, well, what's the, the next step from here? But it sounds like you're pretty content where you are. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's great. What else can I say? Like, I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. I also work very hard and I'm very yeah. passionate. So what else can I say? With this, with this stable work, no strife over here. Everything's good. There you go. That was our buddy Becky Stern. You can check out her work at BeckyStern.com. Highly recommend you go take a visit and see all of the cool projects that she's working on. Thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that. Always good catching up with Becky. Thanks to you guys, Zoe's, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We do have a Patreon that we don't discuss all the time, but uh, if you've got a couple of bucks to send our way, that would be helpful. We are actually losing money on the show right now due to boosting costs. Follow us on Tumblr. That's riylcast.tumblr.com. That's the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. Like us on Facebook, and if you have any feedback, it's riylcast.com at gmail.com that's about all i got for this week so stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of riyl